welcome adventurer to the Level Up Board Game Podcast, a show that uses your experiences and opinions to discuss board games and the gaming community. Join the heroes as they conquer perils such as meeples, cards, and miniatures, all in an effort to level up. You're listening to the Level Up Board Game Podcast. Welcome adventurers to episode 37 of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. This is King Scott here. And this is just Patrick. Today we've got a lot of things going on. We've got some adventures on the horizon, some recent adventures. We have Josh on Lost Loot with Blood of the Englishman. Is that right? The Did blood, I hear that correctly? I, yeah, basically. The Blood of an Englishman. Of an Englishman. That just reminds me of something that starts with fee-fi-fo-fum, I believe. Yes, sir. So we'll just have to wait and see what he says about that. Mm-hmm. There's just so many things going on. I know, unfortunately, my wife has been a little under the weather, so we've been quarantined a bit. But other than that- Wait, wait, that, quarantine? Still... She didn't get COVID, did she? Uh, oh, no. No, no, no. She didn't so have COVID. So you got me sitting she got here with you. I don't want you to... times. Good. <laughs> no, she had pneumonia for the first time, so that was not fun. That's yeah. not holding us back here. We're getting all set here. We got games we played. We got games that are coming up, games that we want to play. There's just a ton of stuff here today. So, so what you been games. up to, Patrick? Oi, oi, busy. Always busy. I had the chance to go to Nikki's yesterday. That, For those of you that were there, now you know that this episode is being recorded remarkably close to the release date. I'm a little bit nervous about if it's going to be edited in time. But uh, I went to Nikki's house and, uh, oh, oh, Scott, I'm telling you what, you've got to go to their January meetup. I went into the basement. Never before have I been so comfortable and at home in a stranger's basement. <laughs> <laughs> that is a sentence I never thought I'd actually hear. Oh, the 5x5 five five calyx shelving. She must have four of them stuffed to the gills. There are closets. Like, you turn a corner and it's like, oh, this is the closet of the region. Oh, nope. That's the brand new Hero Quest that just came through on their oh. crowdfunding. And turn another corner, it's like, well, there's probably not much in this. That's a whole bunch. That is more HeroScape than I've ever... Dude, it's like being in a in a comic shop. She has more games than SCG has for sale. It's absurd. It was <laughs> oh wonderful. My God. Half of them are in shrink. She's like, yeah, if you want to play anything that's in shrink, just peel it open. Have at it. Good time. <laughs> it was a good Holy time. Holy cow. Yeah, I'll get into that uh, that game day with, uh, with the Pittsburgh, the Steel City Gaming Group a little bit more next episode. I want adventurers to go back and listen to the Megapulse episode. Scott, we were quoted on that Kickstarter. Woo! And they funded. Megapulse is funded. Hand of Destiny. We also, um, that wasn't, uh, what did we do Hand of Destiny for? That was an adventure on the horizon. Yes, Hand of Destiny was. And it is one of three games that you can pledge to one, two, or all three of them. They funded as well. So things are rocking for, uh, for Hand of Destiny, for Megapulse. Congrats to both of them. Those of you that aren't funded, that should have been on our show, you've learned your lesson. Senjutsu funded, so I'm I'm feeling good here. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've got a good, good track record here so So far. So far, so good. We've got a meetup in a couple days, Scott, from the time this goes live. If you're in the Pittsburgh area, two days from today, we're going to be at Black Lotus Pizza on Penn, just past the Children's Hospital. Good luck on parking. Chrissy tells me that's also Pittsburgh's light-up night. So it's it's gonna be interesting. Oh, oh boy, <laughs> yeah. I've had some uh, changes in my plans, and it's opened up. I will be there the entire time as well. So 
Lots of gaming to be had this weekend. Oh, absolutely. Hey, guess what? Cape May. We talked to uh, Keith. Keith from Thunderworks. He was telling us about Eric Masso and his Cape May game that I understand you've had to the table several times and haven't had me play it. Oh, yes, I have. Eric's going to be at Games Unlimited that same day. So, 3 o'clock. Yeah, get to Games Unlimited. They're going to have Eric Masso, creator of Cape May. He's going to be, well, I don't know what he's going to be doing. I assume demoing the game and signing copies and whatnot. That sounds awesome there. I mean, I hey, 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 if he's in the area, I mean, we're not that far away. He could always swing past and, oh, grab some pizza, grab a drink. And you know what? Just throwing it out there. I didn't put it on the Facebook or anything because I don't want to sway anybody from going and checking out Games Unlimited because they are awesome. And I hope to have a meetup there at the beginning of the year. But Eric might be coming and joining us for a game or two after he's what? done there. Yeah. Oh. I lured oh. him with a beer. I told him I'd buy him a beer. And he's like, all right. I'm excellent. Coming. Excellent. Well, I, we like cheap guests. Scott, I'm scrolling down the Facebook, and I, I keep calling it the Facebook. I think I'm getting older. It happens. I mean, I still call it the internet, so. There you go. The WWWs. Yep, yep. I'm scrolling down, and I, I regularly see these Magic the Gathering secret lair advertisements. You might not get that. You don't follow as much Magic as I do, and I haven't. No, you no. know, I haven't played it for years now. Uh, what three or four anyway? And yet, I still get advertisements for their secret lairs. And this new one has a dismember card in it that I had to double take. This thing looks like a post. It doesn't look like a Magic card. If somebody, if if I didn't know that they were doing secret layers and somebody held up this card, I'd be like, oh, wow, that's uh, what game is that? Looks like a movie oh, poster. Oh, Look at this thing. I'm looking at it. Yeah, yeah. That It, it reminds me of something that Vincent Price and, and uh, Christopher Lee would be in or something. They're getting wild with these secret layers. It seems to be like a new one every quarter or something. And you know what? I, I had to put in the – you're probably wondering why I put this in the show notes, like manufactured collectability. I'm sorry. Yeah. When something is made to be collectible, like this dismember, which I don't know if I love it or hate it. When something is made to be collectible, that makes it not collectible. Yeah, that's something there. I got to go back in a past life, and well, still today. I mean, I still read comics, but way back when, whenever they had the big thing with Superman was being killed off, he was going to die. They did this whole big thing, just like you're saying about the collectability. They had it put in black shrink wrap they had a black armband inside of it they had the front page of the daily planet with the death of superman all these things put in there people went insane they bought this stuff like crazy thinking like you said it's going to be collectible i'm going to put my kids through college now now granted at the time whenever you bought it if you had a first edition of it you might get 75 bucks for it right away but as time went on and Superman, spoilers, Superman came back. What? Um, I know. <laughs> it's, I, people still, whenever I had my shop, they would come in and like, they'd be all excited. I have a death of Superman, Superman 75. And I'll be, uh, yeah, we'll give you a three bucks for it. Three bucks? No, you don't understand. Three this bucks? Oh, yeah. I, price of it went downhill so fast. Mm. And it was just one of those things that they produced it for the collectability, not for just the surprise aspect of, hey, guess what's going to be in this one? And I, it's it that's something there that, yeah, I, I find really annoying. I just like to be surprised with it. If I opened up a pack or something and found this dismember card in there, yeah, I'd be thrilled to death. I mean, this is so cool. But knowing that it's made for the collectability aspect of it, 
it's fun, but it's uh, I don't know. You know what I think detracts from the secret layers for me. Now, to Wizard's credit, the secret layers these you can't get in packs, and they're not like super mass produced, like something like Spider Man, uh, Spider Man, Superman seventy five might have been. These are we're only going to print enough to fulfill the orders that we get. Something along those lines, mm-hmm. and that's it. I don't, I don't know. They probably print a few extras or some for shops right. or whatever, but it's not like a set where there's a print run so long as it's in demand, and then mm-hmm. they eventually shut it down. These, they just they make enough copies to fulfill their pre-orders, and they're done. I think maybe to sum up the disenchantment with it, no Magic the Gathering pun intended there, if I'm playing against somebody and they have uh, four dismembers in their deck, and they're all this cool art dismember, they didn't have to seek those out. They didn't have to collect them. They didn't have to crack open boxes and, you know, find them. They just had to buy four secret layers. Now, that's the same even if somebody's got an all-foil deck. They didn't open all those cards. They probably just went on eBay and bought them. But something about, like, yeah, that's I, – I don't know where I'm going with that. I, <laughs> I don't know if I love it or hate it. But uh, that – just remember, it took, me, uh, it, it took me a minute to realize that I was looking at a magic card. I thought that was kind of interesting. But, hey, that's not what people are, uh, are joining in to listen to and hear us talk about. Let's get into some recent adventures, Scott. Do you want to lead it off yeah. or do you want me to? I'll take I'll take the reins on this one. You do it. I had a chance to play a game called Flourish. This is a 2021 game from James and Clarissa Wilson, released by Starling Games. Scott, let's set the table here for a minute. James Wilson is a designer known for a very popular game, one that we reviewed way uh-huh. back. It has something to do with woodland creatures mm-hmm. and a giant tree. Something by the name of Everdell. Yeah, so you know it's Everdell. So this naturally is going to have some lofty, lofty expectations sitting down oh, for certainly. Game Flourish. This is a game for one to seven players. It takes about 45 minutes almost regardless of player count. So what exactly are you doing in a game? Well, players are going to be drafting cards a la Seven Wonders to build a garden of their dreams. But... Make no mistake, though, the the theme here is not the focal point. It's more the window dressing. And the game truly is a deck of cards. It's got that big, beautiful box. The game is a deck of cards. Let's rewind a bit to that drafting. The drafting's different from what you might be used to. I said drafting a la Seven Wonders, but it's actually quite different. Uh, is it involves selecting a card for yourself, then passing one to your neighbor on your left and one to your neighbor on the right? Everyone starts the game with six cards. You're going to put one down in front of you, pass one to the left, one to the right. The other three in your hand, they're going to stay there for next round. Everybody reveals the card that they played, and then they pick up the cards that were passed to them. You're on my right, and you passed me a card, and Nikki's on my left, she passed me a card. So now I'm at five cards, and everybody will draw one more card so that they're back to a full hand of six. After this happens a few times, each player is going to have three cards in a row in front of them. And you're going to score points according to your cards. A card, for example, might score you a point for each rose symbol on all of your cards or each mushrooms. We then get right back to drafting cards and making our second row of three, after which we're going to score points again. But interestingly, if I have a card in this row that's going to score me a point for each, I don't know, we'll stick with rows. I don't just look at the, the symbols on this row of three. I will look for rose symbols on the first row and the second row, or clovers, or mushrooms, or whatever symbol my point-scoring card happens to have on it. Make sense? Yes, it does. So I get to see all six of my cards. Back to drafting for row number three, and then scoring again at the end of that round before the final round, which is slightly different in that there's no draft. You simply pick up the three cards that were left in your hand, 
along with the right. two that were passed to you, and you don't get to draw a new card. This time, with that five-card hand, you select three at a time. Boom, boom, boom. Put them all down in a row. Done. You'll score points for the row, as well as any end game points for your cards that you might have in your garden. So like I said before, if you have something that says score a point for every mushroom symbol, it's not just going to be in row four, but it's going to be in all four of the rows that you've made to this point. So you can imagine early game, I, I'm going to play a whole bunch of mushroom symbols. I'm going to hold onto this card in my hand that scores for all the mushrooms. And I'm going to try and play a mushroom game. And boom, fourth row, you play that score for every mushroom thing. You've built up 15 of them. Some cards... Likewise, might also have at the end of the game, this is worth points for something rather than just the end of the round. Make sense? First thing that comes to my mind is this seems like it's a game that's good for someone who's played it a few times because you know the strategies. Is it fun for someone who just is coming in, play it for the first time, or is it one that you think you'll get more enjoyment out of the longer you play it? I think it's one that you can have fun on. I mean, every game you can have fun on, on your first play, but it's not going to be a game like on Mars where the first game you're cracking the rules. This is not a complex game. Uh, it mm -hmm. presents that classic challenge of taking points as they show up or setting yourself up for a big payoff. I'll give you an example. There's a card with three rose symbols on it. That's it. No points, no end game points, nothing. Just a rose symbol. Rose like the flower. Mm -hmm. I'm saying, you know, a rose of cards and rose like the... You know what? I'm <laughs> going to change it. We're going to say clovers. Uh, there's a card with three clover symbols on it. Nothing else. I'm going to be way behind if I do this, but what happens if in each round all three of my cards are that card? Now, that simple score one for each clover card becomes a powerhouse for the rest of my game. And interestingly right. enough, the person on my left and the person on my right, they can see that. So they might not pass me those cards. They might, the person to my right might shift it to his right. So it's even further away from me. And, and oh no, it, it screwed up my strategy. But it's not difficult to suss out that, okay, I want to play symbols and then I want to play with payoff cards for those symbols. Okay, okay. I, I I see there. It just seemed to me that it was something where you were playing how you were saying about how you plan for the end game of keeping that card in there that's gonna give you um points for so many things that you played before, if that's something that is going to play better for someone who's played it a lot. You'll be more aware of it. You'll be more keen to look for it. A lot of cards have three symbols, like those mushrooms, uh -huh. roses, or or clovers, for example. And a simple play might be, I'm going to play one of those uh, with three clovers. Then my second card, oh, it's a card with one clover. And then my third card is going to be, score a point for every clover. Hey, look, I just got four points because I have four clovers. Now, the more... I don't want to say that the, the more skilled player, somebody who's it's not their first rodeo, they might hold on to that score points for clovers card. And they might be thinking, I'm not going to play it here. Because if I wait until the end of round three or the end of round four, I might have 11 clovers showing. You know what I mean? You might think a little bit more mm -hmm. strategically and a little bit less tactically. But I think that the game can be won in either fashion. You can, you can play a tactical game and just try and max out each row, each round of play. Or you can try and play a long-term strategic game where you're trying to shoot for big payoffs in, uh, in round four. Yeah, just looking at it, it looks like a gorgeous game. Yeah, so components. Uh, first and foremost, I said already, the box is beautiful, which is stupid to say in a podcast because <laughs> who cares? <laughs> uh, but honestly, it's really well done. There's like a gloss finish along with the designer signatures in the bottom right. It's in a gold UV printing. It just looks sleek. Now, as for the game, as I said, it's basically cards, and it is. But you're going to be surprised with how much 
punch board you're going to have to go through to assemble this game. See, they give players... Oh, I bet. First and foremost, you get fences to put in between each player, like a little cardboard fence that you're going to... Like me, I'm going to put it in between me and the person to my right and me and the person to my left, for example. And actually, I was surprised at how helpful that was. It became really pivotal in tracking which cards were already passed to me. Like if I pass a card to you and, and you're on my right, we might be looking at it like, wait, is that one that you already passed? Is that one that I passed to you? Nope, it's on your side of the fence. I have passed it to you. You still owe me a card. And the score trackers, they have a cardboard assembled dials, really nice. But beyond that, Flourish comes with the Friends and Follies expansions, which add variations on the way that you play. And this can range from making various points exponential or allowing cycling through the deck a little bit faster so you can see more cards. Maybe you don't get blocked from that big payoff card that you're digging for. This all means more components, most of which is in the Follies variant, but really the base game and the way that I've been playing it the most has been just a deck of cards. It, it sounds very, very cool. I, I like that. So that is Flourish. Yeah, Flourish. Solid game. All right, Patrick, we've had fun with your little Rose Garden and everything else. Now we're going into the great big wildlands of outer space. We had It's not a little Rose Garden, first of all. Hey, hey, hey. Even if it's a little rose garden, it's a beautiful rose garden, Fair so enough. just be happy. Anyway. <laughs> What'd you play? I played a game of Gravwell, the second edition of this one. Came Ooh. out in 2021, and can play up to six people. Mm -hmm. Now, I played it with two people. Playing it with two people gave me enough of a headache. Playing with six people, I can only imagine what this game is going to be like. So, what it is, is you are in a spaceship, you've been sucked through a black hole, running low on fuel. So you're trying to find a way to get to a warp gate and save yourself. Mm -hmm. So the board is set up like a giant spiral. Of course, with the black hole, you got gravity pulling things in. You've got gravity pulling ships in, pulling asteroids in, different debris in. You have a hand of cards. Your cards are different elements that will help you power your tractor beam. All so right. that's the interesting thing here. You're using a tractor beam and not your engines to escape the gravity of the black hole. So what that means is you're either going to pull yourself towards something mm -hmm. or push something away from something else. Little play on gravity. I see yes. what they're doing there. If you want to move ahead, you need to make sure that you have a ship in front of you or an asteroid in front of you that you can latch onto and pull yourself forward and slingshot yourself past that to go on further or you want to find somebody who is behind you and push them away from you so you can get further ahead and put yourself in a better position to move along mm -hmm. now then the element cards are all alphabetized and they will have different numbers on there as to how far you can move so what you do is everyone takes a card places it face down in front of them you all flip them over at the same time it goes alphabetically in order as to who's going to go next. All right. So that's a little bit tricky there because if you're planning on grabbing a hold of someone's ship right in front of you, you want to make sure you have a card that's really early, like an A, a B, or a C. Because you got to do it In order to pull yourself ahead. They may get an A out before you and zoom ahead and you're left stranded there and you're kind of stuck. Can't grapple onto them so, anymore. Makes sense. Exactly. So it's it's pretty tricky. Now, the nice thing with this is they've also put in asymmetric rules for each of the ships. So they'll have 
different powers for them. There'll be three different powers that each ship has. It could be something where it's a stealth ship where people can't latch on to you or better shields and you're able to push yourself double further away from things. But there's also one that's an emergency stop card where if someone is pushing you away, you can say, boom, emergency stop. I'm done. You can't push me. It's really tricky going through your cards, playing them out how you want them to go. Mm -hmm. But it's a fun game. And like I said, playing two people, it went pretty quickly. I mean, it would have been fun to take a little more time. This took maybe about 30 minutes. You get up four or five, maybe six people. The amount of pushing and pulling from ships around you is going to be absolutely insane. <laughs> and I truly cannot wait to get this out here. Would introduce uh, chaos to the game. This is definitely going to the meetup. And I want to see, yeah, I want to see the chaos that unleashes from this game. Oh, you bought this one. Yes. Well, yes, I did. My list of questions, one of them was going to be, is this one staying in your collection? It's going to be in my collection for a little while. I'm not sure if it has the staying power mm -hmm. of, uh, of a terraforming Mars or something like that, but it's going to stay in the collection. I'm going to get enjoyment out of it. Definitely get that. I might try and introduce to my uh, nephews. Mm -hmm. It's simple enough for them to grasp. They should be able to get the idea of that, have some fun with it, and then it may be going on to as a gift for them later on whenever they uh, get a little bit better at games and here you go. Mom, Uncle, first one's Uncle free. Scott just gives us his old games. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, you've mentioned uh, that you can like push and pull each other. Is there a lot of take that going on here? So, oh, it sounds like an aggressive can game. be. Yes, yes. If you're pushing someone back, mm -hmm. you get in a position where you're close to an asteroid, you may want to push somebody back. You see where they're going. You see what they're trying to do. As soon as you do that, this game is wrapped in karma. I don't know why. Anytime you do something like that, something horrible will happen to you. <laughs> Naturally. Well, sounds like a good one, and I'm excited to get that one played with you. Gravwell, I that remember, speaking of uh, black holes and whatnot, I just, in, back in my school days, we watched a video about black holes. Did you know that if you, theoretically, I, I remember watching this video, it was uh, it was Homer Simpson. They used Simpson's characters to explain a black hole. Oh, oh. And Homer <laughs> walks up to a black hole, and they're like, talking about how if you put your finger, if you could theoretically put your finger in a black hole... One of the atoms at the end of your finger would stretch through the black hole so that one part of the atom would be on the other side and out while the other part of the atom hasn't yet entered the black hole. Like you, oh. like all of your atoms spaghetti through the black hole. The more I you know, know whenever they talked about black holes, whenever I was in school, I was terrified that that was one of my biggest fears in life, that black holes were going to suck the earth into it and we we're all going to die. Really? Little did I know that whenever I was in my formative years that black holes and quicksand were not going to be that big of a uh, threat to me in my lifetime. Wait, so. quicksand is, a, uh, is something that you're... Oh, that's another one. I mean, every movie you watch, there was quicksand or something like that. So I thought, my God, there's quicksand everywhere. <laughs> this episode has been sponsored by Thorgate. As energy needs increase, Nordic Thorgate has emerged as the new world leader in the energy field with their cutting-edge technology. Striving to meet your energy needs, you can count on Thorgate.
Speaking of digging around in the sand, I dug around in Jurassic Parts, a 2020 game by Kevin Lansing, published by 25th Century Games. Scott, I had this one since summer, and I've played it a handful of times over the last few months. I just haven't had that chance to get it into an episode until now. Really, the secret is I'm backlogged on things that I've played and need to squeeze in episodes, <laughs> but we can't run them too long. So in Jurassic Parks, <clears throat> I'm going to call it Jurassic Park at least four times. Oh, I know. So, in Jurassic Parts, P-A-R-T-S, you take on the role of paleontologists digging up fossils. And in acquiring fossils, you score points. And it's not just, hey, I got a tile with a dinosaur. No, the scoring is all mapped out on a sheet in front of you that each player receives, which depicts the tiles that you can collect. And it has specific recipes for scoring points. So like you collect a pterodactyl, it's only one tile, but it only scores one point. And Brontosaurus, on the other hand, you need a few unique different tiles and it'll score 15 but it requires that player to collect their recipe of five different specific tiles so let's talk about tiles what is going on in jurassic parts this little box and it's a little box has something like 80 hex tiles in it depicting fossils some are blank some have like plant fossils and then several of them have dino bones at the start of the game you're going to put half the tiles face down and half of them face up mixed up and join it all together to create a board okay how do we go about getting the tiles are chisels every player's got chisels in their player color and each turn players have access to a number of these chisels they can place on the board between two hexes just like how you put a road down in Catan. Right. Right. On the border of two hexes. Eventually, a portion of the board is going to be entirely cut off. So picture uh, picture a big circle and like Pac-Man, like somebody makes makes their chisels make a triangle like Pac-Man's mm-hmm. mouth, like it's separated that part. Well, at that point, that's cut off with a, using the Catan reference, road of chisels. At that point, that section of the board is removed from the main board. All of the tiles are shown, and the chisels that cause the separation are returned to their respective players. Now, whoever had the most of them, the most chisels, they get half of those tiles. They get to look at all those tiles, and they get to take half of them. So if we broke off a section of, uh, say, 16 tiles, and I had the most chisels, I collect eight of those tiles. There's eight left. Whoever had the second most chisels gets half of the remainder. So those eight that are left, they get four. And whoever was third will get two, one, etc. until sure. there's no rounding to a, a number. And sometimes there's only two people that broke off the amount. So first gets half, then second gets half of the remainder. You get it, right? I mean, it's nice and simple. It sounds like a game that you would just make up whenever the pieces that you have laying around. So it's an easy technique to pick up on. So I like this so Very. Far. Mm-hmm. You know what else? It gives you some subtle interaction between the players because you're kind of encouraged to sneak a chisel into the line right before a piece gets cut off. So now we can see how we get the tiles to score. We could stop right here and we have a pretty solid foundation, but they build on it with Amber, which is acquired when you collect various fossils. Amber is kind of like a wild. It's going to introduce some abilities like getting more chisels for you to work with. Or you can use your amber to ignore rocks. Wait wait a minute. Rocks? Rocks are simply like at the end, the borders of a tile. There might be a rock symbol there, and that's simply an obstacle. Or if you see it and you want to place a chisel there, it costs you two chisels instead of one. You could use an amber, for example, to ignore that. You have a few options with what to do with your amber. All right. Play continues until the excavation site is entirely excavated, (laughs) at which point (laughs) players are going to tally up their scores and the high score wins. You're saying about Jurassic Parts and you're going through, and I did say parts. Mm -hmm. Um, I got it. 
you have the hexes. Now, are the chisels like little chits or are they actually plastic or what are the components like in the game? Well, the chisels are plastic, and I mean, it looks like a road with a divot in the, or a Catan road. It looks like a Catan road made out of plastic with a divot in the middle. It's, all right. you know, how fancy can you make a chisel? The tiles, some of them have like a UV coloring on them, so you know how like you can, sometimes a game component, you can hold it uh, like underneath the light and turn it a little bit, and you can see that some of it has a matte finish and some mm. of it has a glossy finish. Uh-huh. It's got that going for it too. Everything's functional. My favorite component, and I'm sure every review points this out, the first player token. It looks like a piece of, what was it in Jurassic Park? The honey uh, or the ant? I think they called the it amber. The amber was a mosquito and amber. Yes. It's it's basically a glass bead with a little printed on mosquito on the bottom so that whenever <laughs> you hold it up, it looks like it's inside of the amber. I thought that was really, really clever. Um, components are fine for what the game is. Like there's no reason. To, you're not going to have miniatures in this. It's, a, it's an abstract right. tile laying game. Well, now, tile you- unlaying game. How many people does this play, and do you think it would get crazier with more people, or what do you think about that? What's what's your thoughts? Jurassic Parts plays two to five. I played it at three. I think it would get a bit more hectic at five. Obviously, a lower score because you have less tiles that each individual is mm-hmm. collecting, and yet I think that would make it a little more interesting with three people. There was often an incentive to like, okay, I'm just going to break off a small chunk and make it mine. You know, it got a little hard. Like, if you tried to do anything with a big row everybody was going to get a piece of that. Right, right. I think with multiple people, like if it's my turn, I can start a small break off and then the last person in player order isn't actually going to even be able to wedge their way in. It's not a complex game. You know, I I think two to five, it's going to be a chaotic game no matter how many people are playing. It's just the nature of it. You can't break off a chunk of seven for yourself. You're going to have to work together with other people. And even if you're not working together, you're competing with other people. But to break off a chunk means that multiple people are going to have their chisels in a line that breaks off a chunk. That said, no part of this is complex. You know, it's really simple. The recipes are right on the card for you. So, I mean... I don't think Sarah's there yet. My six mm-hmm. year six and a half year old, she'll she'll correct me. Six and a half. <laughs> She's not there yet, but I think that she could understand, okay, we want to break off pieces and then I get some of these tiles and I put them onto this board and I'm trying to match up certain types. She might not play optimally, but that's not that tough to grasp. So I, I think it's a game that just about anybody could get to the table. Not a complex game. And you know what? That makes it kind of a tricky one with your gamer buddies. Like, I don't see me having the lobsters over. All right, guys, we're going to play some Jurassic Parts. We might try it. You know, if it's on the, if one of them says, hey, what's that one? Like, oh, hey, we've we've got half an hour. Let's give this a whirl before, I don't know, before Ryan gets here. Yeah. a, A simple, quick game, Jurassic Parts. I'm busy trying to get my nephews into games here. So that's when I'll have to take over their place and show them how to play Jurassic Parts. Scott, I like the next one you got on the list here. Tell us a little bit about it. What's this game? Tiny Epic Pirates. This came out 2021 from Gamelin Games. I'm a huge Tiny Epic fan. I have, oh, geez. Does that make you a Tiny fan? What? I'm I'm a huge Tiny fan. Yes. But (laughs) this is, again, they do this every time. I don't know how they get so much game in these little boxes. This could easily be in a much bigger box and be sold at a higher price. They could have marketed Tiny Epic Pirates as a as a full, you know, big box. Oh, not easily, not a giant easily. game, but a big box game. So what's but going yes. on in Tiny Epic Pirates? 
In Tiny Epic Pirates, you are going through the Caribbean Sea and you are plundering villages. You are going to your secret ports to get crew members, going to markets to sell your goods, to change the demand and the price for all the goods, battling merchants and other pirates, all while trying to stay away from the Royal Navy. In Tiny Epic Pirates, you have, there are 16 different cards you should put out to mm -hmm. build the board. So each one of these has different things on there where you can go plunder, you can find a secret port, you can uh, sell things, you can bury your treasure, all this stuff on there. There are different places on there where there's storms that are going on, so you have to be careful whenever you're in, hitting the storm. So you start off, you have two cards in front of you. You have the card that keeps track of all your gold and keeps track of your legendary status of whenever you go from a sea dog all the way up to a dread pirate. The other card that you have is the card that represents the workings of your ship. Mm -hmm. Now then on this, you will have a giant ship's wheel on it. And there will be six little triangular places that are on there that are blank. Each person gets five different triangles to put in there. So this builds up the whole idea of how this game is replayable. This changes yeah, every in time you play it. Asymmetry into the rondelle, into their action selection rondelle is going to be different, not only for you, but for all the other players at the table too. Exactly. Yes. Mm -hmm. So each one of these triangles will be either for plundering, for uh, recruiting, mm -hmm. for selling goods using your spyglass and checking out what's going on in the area or for battling. So what you will do is you take your captain figure that's on the top of your ship and you will move it around to what you want to do. Say you want to go to the second space on there and that's going to be your plunder space. You move your captain two spaces across the bottom. You have three people that are down there, three crew members that are covering the riggings, the cannons, and the extortion so you mm. can get gold from different things. Whenever you do that, whenever you move somebody and you skip one of the spaces, you put one of those crew members on there because, hey, everything has to, has to work smoothly on the ship. You can't leave anything open. You will move, you'll go to different areas of different islands, you'll plunder. There'll be little boxes on there saying you can plunder for one or for two goods. Plunder, you reach in the, I hate saying this so much, the booty bag. <laughs> <laughs> and you get out however pieces of booty you need to put on your ship. <laughs> Now then, the incredible thing about this game is you're looking at a, a box that's six inches by four inches, maybe. You have four plastic ships with riggings on them for mm -hmm. all the four players. You have a Navy ship with rigging on it, two merchant ships with riggings on it. Each one of these have spaces for you to put your booty on so you can sail around and drop it off at different ports. As you go along, you go around the circle. Whenever you make it the whole way around the circle, what will happen is then you move the merchants and the Navy. So what will happen is the merchants start into two opposite corners. They will move one space closer to the opposite side. Mm -hmm. The Navy will go closest as they can get to the active player. So there's basically no way you can beat the Navy. Once the Navy hits you, boom. 
everything goes into all your uh, crew members go into repair. You have very slow ship. You're in bad shape. The other interesting thing about this game is the crew members. Your captain and crew members have different abilities, each one of them completely different abilities. So on the top of each one of the little cards, they have really interesting names that they have for each of the captains and the crew members, but there will be die symbols on the very top. Mm -hmm. At the bottom, there will be one symbol that's similar to what's on the captain's wheel and two other symbols on on the other side of it. So what happens with the die symbols, whenever you're in a battle, you roll however many dice you have based on your legendary card. Every number that you have, say you rolled a six and two threes. Mm -hmm. If you have a one, two, and a three, the threes will hit and you hit on each three that you have on your crew members. I really like that in Tiny Epic. I um, this is all coming back to me. We played this together some yes, six or yes. seven months ago. I love that you can pick crew. Now, they have their own abilities anyway, but you can also pay attention to how they're going to help you hit. So you can specialize. And be, okay, this guy's got a three and a four. This guy has a three and a four. This guy has a one, a two, and a three. Mm-hmm. Man, I hit hard on a three, oh, and yeah. I still hit yeah. pretty darn good on a four. Yeah, I missed on a five or six, but to that point, I could also take a guy that has one, two, three. A guy mm-hmm. that has four, five, and a guy that has five, six. So it's like, okay, no matter what, all of my dice are, are going to at least get one hit. I'm never going to roll a three and boom, 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 get you three times, but I'm going to hit on everything. They give you a lot of dis- a lot of a meaningful choice when you're recruiting. Oh, yes. And uh, there's also ones, crew members that will hit automatically, no matter what. The other thing that's kind of fun is your captains. Your captain cards are double-sided. So on one side, they will be one, two, and three with the die symbols. The other side will be four, five, or six. So depending on what you have with your crew members that you're building up, so say you have a bunch of fours and fives and your captain's on one, two, or three, if you want to cover the board with making sure you at least get one hit with anything you roll, leave it that way. Mm-hmm. Or if you really want to go for it and just say, you know what, I'm going to gun for anything that comes near me, you can mutiny and flip that captain over. Now, the other side of the, the captain is four, five, or six. So you can only do that once per game. You can only mutiny once. That can also change the way you're playing. So you're either going to go for like one shot on just every number you can get, or you really want to be a powerhouse and do like you said and get like four or five threes and just pound anything that comes near you. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more to this. I mean, this game is not a simple game. It's not, there's a it's lot of strategy. It's not overly complex either. No, it, but it's definitely a little bit higher. It's probably mid, mid to mid high, I would say, because you also have to bury your treasure. You have to keep track of the gold that you have. There's a lot of stuff that goes on in this game. But once again, gambling games, I don't know how they do this. Each one of their games has totally different mechanics. They all fit in the same size box, and they put in more and more and more each time that they put out one of these games. Scott, what is a pirate's favorite letter? I'm going to say R. Ah, you think it'd be R, but it'd be the C. Oh, you mean Recent Adventures is over? All done. It's time for the top 100 updates, Scott. 
We've got oh, a right. new Even game better. on the BGG Top 100. Pandemic Legacy Season 0 is number 100. Uh, hey, I think just broke through. Speaking of Legacy, Clank Legacy is up to number 37. And, Scott, we've got a handful of birthdays, four of them this time, starting with Agricola, the revised edition, three years. <laughs> we'll get there. Fields of Arl, six years. Dominion Intrigue, 11 years. You remember, it wasn't that long ago. We were like, oh, it's a turning of the page. Dominion fell off the top 100. Well, Dominion Intrigue is still on there, and it's been on there for 11 wow. years. And, Scott, you'll be happy to hear that Agricola, the regular old version, has been on there for 14 years. Uh. <laughs> Scott, I'll give you your chance to uh, to gripe on Agricola when we get to our little uh, so kind of indulging ourselves discussion after the review game today. But we're going to be doing Micro Macro Crime City. Ooh, I'm anxious to talk about it. You want to do the walkthrough? On it. Designed by Johann Zitsch and published by Pegasus Spiel in 2020, Micro Macro Crime City is a game that challenges players to take on the role of investigators attempting to solve crimes. To begin the game, take out and unfold a large map depicting the city and its residents. This is a game that can be played solo, but if playing with more than one player, you'll need to assign one person as the lead investigator. Next, take out the envelope with the number case you're attempting. This envelope simply has the instructional clue cards for that particular case. The lead investigator reads the first card, which tells the story of the crime, followed by the second card, which describes what you're looking for first. An example would be that Mr. Walton has been murdered outside of the subway in the northwest sector of the map. Find Mr. Walton. Players will look for the character depicted on that first clue card, and when found, they'll declare what section of the map his body was found in, say, section A2. The lead investigator turns the card over to check and see if A2 is in fact correct. If the players were wrong, the investigation continues, but the lead investigator, who now knows the answer, can no longer participate with this specific card. If correct, however, then the next card is revealed with a new instruction. Play simply continues in this fashion until all clues have been solved, at which point the players have successfully completed the case. Now, we typically say how there's much more to a game than what was outlined in a walkthrough. In this case, though, that's basically the game. There are 16 cases in the base game, and the clue cards and cases do become more difficult as you progress further, even asking players to deduce what might have happened given what they're seeing. But bottom line, if you know how to look for things, you already know how to play. So, our heroes find themselves against a case-cracking quest of, I suppose, vision? It's time for the 8-Bit Breakdown of Micro Macro Crime City. Scott, this is normally where I would have you do a flavor read, something to get listeners juiced up on the theme of the game. What do you got? Things happen on a big map. <laughs> Listeners, we like to break down games on Level Up using the 8-Bit Breakdown. Looking at eight different bits of the game and sharing our thoughts. Starting, Scott, with bit number one. What do you think about the art and components of Micro Macro? Well, components, there really isn't any. You got some cards and you got a big map. But I've got to say, making that map has got to be a Herculean adventure in itself trying to make that map and keep track of all the characters and all the people 
and all of it in black and white. Whoever drew all that has got to be like sitting in a padded cell right now. <laughs> right. The art and components, it's simplistic, but it works. Oh, you said it cards and a map and we'll throw in there's also a magnifier and that is it? Yeah. And the art oh, in your little envelopes. Yeah, yeah, you have the envelopes to to hold each of the missions. Your art in micro macros, just black and white, simple drawings all over one giant map. That thing had to be like four by two and a half or something, something oh, substantial. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's big. Yeah, um, yeah. Nothing special, but it's exactly what the game needs. Quite frankly, I think that if you add color, it might actually make the game too simple. Like, oh, I'll just look for the person with the red shirt or with the, mm -hmm. the green polka dots. Whereas everything being black and white, I think made it a little bit more of a challenge. And if you add too much detail... That might convolute it a little bit. The simplicity oh, yeah. is, is what's beautiful here. So let's talk theme and immersion. It's simple. There's crime in this city and you have to solve it. Do we feel like we're doing that? <laughs> it's hard to say. I don't feel like, like a gumshoe going around looking for clues. You have a little bit of clues that you're looking for, but it turns out to be like a big Where's Waldo game in a way. But still, this goes back to the art and components. They've done so much with putting in like, oh, wait, they're having a party there. Oh, there's an opening over there at the art studio. Exactly. Oh, wait, look at that. There's so many little things in it that make it fun. But I never once felt like I was really on the trail of somebody. I was just going around trying to find something. See, that I was thought I thing. was on the trail. I thought that in entirely different way. Okay. I, I get you. No, I, I'm not trying to invalidate that. I just it's it's funny that you oh, mentioned no, no, that no. because I felt the total different way. I thought like it was like discovery was being bellowed at me out of a watering hose. You know, if I found something interesting, it was like a light bulb going off, and I would legit get excited. And I was given the I was okay, Jethro. Why were you running away from this scene? And you know, I start <laughs> looking around. I got my finger on the map. Come on, where are you at? Like giving them names and stuff for a big map and some questions. I did actually start to like, you know, like my brain got in there and I'm I'm tracing and trying to follow the step. I, I didn't feel like a detective or anything, but, you know, the, the, the human element of me, the, the part of me that's that has curiosity was who it was. It was getting all kinds of tingles. <laughs> well, what did you think about the complexity? <laughs> like none. Uh, this game is look. <laughs> let's be OK. The game is look and find a thing, right? Now, yes. there are times when the questions being asked are a bit more vague, or at least they require you to find a couple of things and then draw a conclusion. So it does progressively get more tricky to do find a thing. But the complexity is find a thing. The later mm -hmm. missions are more difficult, as I said, but for complexity, I think BGG puts this one at a 1.13, and it is insanely hard to find any popular hobby board game with a rating that low. <laughs> what do you what did you think? I mean, anything to add? Yeah, it's it's not complex, but I think that is what makes it work. If it was more complex, I don't think it would have the fun aspect that it does. If there was more to it, I think I would be more apt to be like, eh, I don't know. I I this is too much for what I'm getting out of it. So mm -hmm. That would be my idea. So I think that the low complexity is what makes this game shine. Didn't you say uh, Heather was getting a kick out of this one? Oh, she was. I mean, she was having a great time trying to find things. If it was more complex, she might not have. Yeah, I don't have time for that. You know, and right, she, right. she's. We'll say she's uh, a casual gamer or almost a non-gamer at times. 
I got to show this one to my wife. She's very casual when it comes to mm-hmm. games. She'll play games because I make her not make. <laughs> She'll play games because I force her to play games. Now, this is one that she might actually pick up uh, on an afternoon if I leave it on a table. And I could see walking in the door and there she is playing Micro Macro because – Oh, yeah. It's, it's, like a, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. Yeah. Whenever yeah. someone has a jigsaw puzzle up, you can't go past it and not try and put in a couple pieces. Yeah. Well, let's talk uh, rule book then. This has two pages, basic two, may, maybe four. It's not in front of me. I think I think it has two. It reflects the game's simplicity. Uh, it doesn't have like big examples or narration because it doesn't need it. No. Yeah the the rule book is very simple, very straightforward. A lot of the rules are printed on the cards themselves as to what you need to do. Mm-hmm. So it it unveils as you're playing. Is there any learning curve here? Bit number five, um, the learning curve. If you can read the cards, you've learned how to play. <laughs> they have an introductory case that is intentionally simple, and it holds your hand through the first mission so that you can learn that finding the thing might oftentimes mean that you also need to find another thing, right? Right, right, exactly. Uh, other than that, this has the lowest learning curve of any review we've done so far and probably any that we ever will do. <laughs> I, I, I think so. And- okay. <laughs> And once again, stay with us till we get to bit number eight here. So, did please, you notice, please. Scott, that the front of the box, it's there's like a little like blurb on the front of the box. It's like learn how to play on this box cover, and it says like who murdered. I don't know. We'll say who murdered King Scott, and you literally have to look for a guy, and you see two X's where the eyes would be, and it's like okay, well that person's been murdered, and there's a bat next to him, and you can follow it up the box, and there's there he is being chased by somebody with a bat. And it's like, oh, okay, it was that guy. They even put that on the front of the box. It's that easy. You don't even have to buy the game or crack the shrink wrap off and you know how to play. That's brilliant. Okay, so normally bit number seven is our downsides, but bit number six might start to uh, tap into it a little bit. Let's talk replayability and variability. Scott, bit number six, replayability and variability. (sighs) I think it's probably going to be a hard game to replay. Once you go through all of them, because there's so much going on with trying to find this person and backtracking through things that you're going through so many different areas that you're going to get really used to the map very quickly. Mm -hmm. So that is a little bit of a tough one there. Now, as far as the variability, their expansion that they have for it is coming out and you add on to this map. Now then, you're playing with an even bigger map. It's going to be kind of tough playing this if you are if you know each expansion is going to be a two and a half foot by three foot map <laughs> that you're going to add on to it. So right now, we're going about eight by six that we're playing. You'd eventually have like wallpaper in your game room. It's just the micro macro map plus expansions. You're going to be like that whole thing from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, the meme that they have. With, with Charlie. That right there is the mail. Now, let's talk about the mail. Can we talk about the mail, please, Max? Charlie with the yarn all over the place. <laughs> Scott, I'm going to be a little bit more blunt. They do a good job of varying the cases that you pursue, and they mix up the types of questions that you're being asked. So there's variability from case to case in the box. I thought, for me, once I'm done with that box, you're done though. Uh, mm-hmm. aside from getting an expansion or passing it on. And that's not a bad thing. You know, the unlock games, you play them once, right. you're pretty much not going to do it again. But you can pass it on. Nothing wrong with that. 
So aside from the replayability and variability being, well, it's kind of a one-off box of game, let's go to bit number seven. Any downsides? You're not going to be breaking this out with more than one or maybe two additional players. Otherwise, you're going to be conking each other in the head. <laughs> yeah, and everyone's going to be fighting for the magnifying glass. Yeah, yeah, especially when you're playing with an old man like Scott. <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah, anyway. A little personal dig. <laughs> really toes the line of being fun or being tedious. It could go either way depending on the mood of the people you're playing with. It's a good way to put it. Was it fun and who is it for? This was fun. Not blow me away. Wow. You know, give me more kind of fun, but it was very enjoyable. I'm glad to have played it. It won the Spiel des Jahres for how different it is. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that I'd qualify it as the best game because I don't know if I would qualify it as a game. I was thinking the same exact thing. Scott, is a crossword puzzle a game? Is a word search a game? It could be. But it's not like. There, you don't have strategy going into it. Maybe that's that's where I'm going with this. It's certainly, to me, not a hobby board game. Uh, right. some, something like a word search, for example, is not a hobby board game, obviously, nor a crossword puzzle. I don't think Micro Macro fits that bill either. It felt more like an activity, be it, it- extremely enjoyable and hobby board game adjacent. That was exactly the word I was going for. This is a great activity. Mm. You're not really strategizing what you're going to be doing in order to get the best score or beat your opponents. But I agree. It was fun. I mean, I had a great time doing it. And I loved seeing my wife get involved with it and having a good time playing it. Now, I still have your copy here. I will get it back to you, but I want to borrow it for Thanksgiving and throw it down for my nephews once again. Oh, they'll get a kick out of it. I think, yeah, I think kids will have an absolute blast playing this. Even if it doesn't lead them into gaming, if nothing else, it just opens up their way of thinking and trying to see how A leads to B to C to D Mm -hmm. to E. So I think it's a great activity more than it is a great game. Well, I can't imagine anyone playing a case or two and not having a nice time with it. If, if I suppose if your vision is deteriorating, it might be a pain in the butt. But otherwise, I think most folks are going to have an enjoyable time playing a little bit of micro macro. Now, who's it for? Uh, it is a game that kids can play, say 10 and up and probably a bit younger. But some mm-hmm. of the questions uh, ask the players to draw conclusions that a young mind might not draw. For that matter, there are some adult themes. I was watching reviews initially when this came out, and they're, you know, like some of the the reviewers are like, oh, this was not a game for kids because, you know, they have a murderer of an artist because he painted a wife naked. <laughs> it's a stick figure, like, <laughs> like take a pencil and poke the paper. That's nipples. On, on I mean, it, yeah. and it's, it's literally a, a millimeter by a millimeter. Uh, that said, I'm not your kid's parent. That's not, right. for, you know, it, it, <laughs> there are some uh, adult themes. There's murder in the game. If you're okay with that sort of thing, Micro Macros going to be great for kids. Yeah, I think it's a great family activity. I mean, it, it lines itself up for a great, like, winter day, uh, snow outside, it's Sunday afternoon, you don't want to go anywhere. Put that out, get the whole family around and play a few scenarios. And with them having an expansion, it gives even more chance for it there great family activity 
So I guess to sum up our thoughts on Micro Macro, we're going to say, we liked it, but we don't know if it's a game. <laughs> So, Patrick, mm-hmm. do you ever have one of those days whenever you're sitting around thinking, I really feel like playing a game? That's literally every back, day. And you go back to your closets of games and you slide open the door and you look around and you try and find something and nothing's like, uh, that's not, no, I'm not feeling that. And then you open up that one door down the bottom and you look back in the back and there's this little thing peeking out back there and you're like, Oh my God, I forgot I had this game. It, that's like finding like this little bit of lost loot. Oh, <laughs> oh, yes. That means Josh is joining us. Exactly. So let's hear what Josh has to say about Blood of an Englishman. Smell the blood of an Englishman. Be he alive or be he dead. I'll grind his bones to make my bread. Welcome, adventurers, to Lost Loot, the part of the show where I, your humble host Josh, get to talk to you about any and all games ranked below 1,000 on the BGG ranking system. Now, what you just heard was an expert from the classic, 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 and very old children's fairy tale, Jack and the Beanstalk. Today, I will be looking at a game that comes in on the BGG ranking system at 2,534. That is the two-player abstract strategy card game, The Blood of an Englishman, designed by Dan Kazar and published by Renegade Games. Now, Renegade Games is definitely not an indie publisher, as they have had many smash hits, especially within the last few years. With so many games produced and released, it is quite easy for a game to be lost in their catalog. As I was searching the Renegade Games catalog that comes with all of their games, I came across a small blip that mentioned this game. Not thinking much of it, I simply thought the cover looked cool and moved on to look at more prominently featured games. One day, at my FLGS, however, I stumbled upon The Blood of an Englishman hiding behind some other more well-known card games. I grabbed it, not intending to buy it, when I discovered that the designer was Dan Kazar. Now this is significant to me because I had previously done some playtesting for one of Dan's newest games that he is developing, and it was a game that I thoroughly enjoyed. So, on a whim, and I, because I had some store credit to spare, I purchased it. And boy, what a good decision that was. In the blood of an Englishman, players take on the role of either Jack or the Giant from the famous fairy tale Jack and the Beanstalk, or Jack the Giant Slayer, which the game is theme around. In the game, players will lay out 5 rows of 10 cards that either contain a beanstalk, a treasure, or a giant card. Jack's goal in the game is to arrange and remove the cards from the play area into his own play area to form a beanstalk. Each beanstalk has a numerical value in the corner, and Jack must numerically arrange them from least to greatest, at least 6 stalks high. He then must collect a treasure at the top, and then move on to the next beanstalk. If Jack grabs 3 treasures, he wins the game. The giant, on the other hand, is trying to arrange his giant cards that have the phrases fee, fi, fo, and thumb. If he does this vertically or horizontally, the giant wins the game. Now the key difference is that Jack and the giant have very asymmetric movesets, with Jack having a much nimbler feel, being able to do more smaller actions on his turn, and the giant being able to do one grandiose action on theirs. Players alternate taking turns until one player achieves their goal and wins the game. 
Now, I had the opportunity actually to reach out to Dan Kassar, who designed this game. Like I previously stated, I have the opportunity to play test with a lot of um, well-known designers and up-and-coming designers just through hobbies and activities of my own. Dan was one of them as he is developing a really good card game, and I hope to be able to see it in publication here soon. And I asked him a couple questions about this game. And now I'd like to share with you his responses. The first question I asked him about The Blood of the Englishman was, As you were designing this game, what kind of experience were you trying to create for the players? He said in return, The idea for the game came to me when my first son was very young. I would read him bedtime stories, and he loved it when I read him Jack and the Beanstalk, because I would boom out in my best giant voice when we got to the fee-fi-fo-fum part of the story. He would stomp around the house saying it himself, and it got me thinking. What would a game telling the story of Jack and the Giant be like? I pictured those four words on cards. It would obviously be a two-player asymmetrical game, and the Giant trying to arrange those cards would represent him closing in on his adversary, creating that same sense of foreboding that you got out of reading the story. The next question I asked him was, what is your favorite part of the game or aspect you are most proud of? He said, I am extremely proud of the game. I spent a long time balancing the two sides and trying to make sure that I captured all the key elements of the story. The journey up the beanstalk three times, the gold, the goose, the harp, the giant's wife. I like that Jack feels agile and sneaky while the giant feels slow and powerful. And playtest statistics show very even win rates for the two sides. I feel like it's a unique set of mechanics that evokes the theme and feels like no other game out there. And that's always what I'm shooting for as a designer. Now, I actually agree with lots of Dan's statements. I think that The Blood of an Englishman is a really fun two-player game. It is designed very well. For what seems to be just a very mechanic-focused game, the theme drips out of it. And that's partly because, as Dan said, he designed it with theme first. It sounded very difficult to me and almost kind of unlikely that a small card game, because all all of the components are, is a deck of really nice well-done artwork cards. I mean, the artwork in the game is really, really fun. Traditional sword and sorcery type artwork. What really captures my attention about it, though, is how the two sides do feel like the opposing characters in the story. Um, Jack definitely does feel nimbler and quick. His He has more actions he can do on his turn. His actions are... They, they impact the play area a lot less than the giants do. So Jack, for instance, he can just like switch two cards around on either the bottom or the top of the stack of cards. So he's just switching, trying to get these cards arranged so he can find these lower number or higher number beanstalk cards to build his beanstalks to get the treasure. He's doing a ton of little things, so he does feel more agile, more nimbler, more quick. Whereas the giant, like I said, does one big action. So it feels like kind of like a boom, 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 like he's just slowly advancing towards Jack. A slow, lumbering behemoth really changing the game state of the board, because the giant has far more opportunities in his turn to change the game state, whether it be moving four cards at once, completely getting rid of a card, or changing entirely what Jack just did by moving two smaller cards anywhere on the board. The interesting part about it, though, is that it packs in such a thematic experience in 30 minutes. What's great about Jack and the Beanstalk, as you know, Dan kind of mentioned in his interview, is that it, it provides the kid, usually, with a slow impending uh, sensation of doom as the giant gets closer and closer to Jack. And in the card game, having played both sides a couple times, 
I feel that as the giant, you start out really slow, and it's really hard sometimes to obtain your objectives as you are trying to arrange the fee, fi, foe, and fum cards. So it's really just finagling trying to set up your success as best as you can. Where Jack, on the other hand, you're going as quick as possible. It's very snappy. You're boom, 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 boom. Here's one, two, three, five, six, seven, nine. You know, a beanstalk, I have a treasure. Like, within the first two turns, if you play your cards right, you can have maybe one and a half beanstalks already done. But that's when the giant starts slowly advances. As the games go on, and as the longer Jack takes to get his treasure, the more powerful the giant becomes. He's able to really mess the Jack, and Jack, instead of being very offensive, has to go on the defense. And a good player this game will know exactly when to do that and still be able to achieve his goal. Now, in our games, Dan said that the win rate is about even. In our games, the Giant has won each time. There's been a couple really close calls. Usually, this game comes down to the wire. And my game playthrough as Jack, usually I'm about two and a half beanstalks done when my wife, out of nowhere, probably due to my stupidity because she's better at games than I am, will just pull out of nowhere. I didn't even see it. She gets the win condition for the Giant, and I go into a sad little rage. She, as the Jack player, will be almost done, just like two cards away from getting her goal when I pull a giant victory out. I did find that it was a little easier to obtain your goal as the giant, but I definitely see the game being very, very close and more experienced players having this 50-50 draw. So overall, what I really like about this game is a very satisfying and brief two-player asymmetric experience. Low components, low cost. If, the, if cost is something you are worried about, this is a very low cost game and it is totally worth it. I can see this bringing on trips and just setting it out and playing a few rounds with my wife as we're waiting for something, maybe at an airport. This is right up my alley. I absolutely love simple, rich, tactical card games. And this has it in spades. And not only that, it brings the theme out. Lots of two-player tactical games don't honestly bring theme out too well or they're just themeless at all. This drips the theme out perfectly on a perfect card game Sunday. That's maybe be a terrible analogy, that's how I feel, because I find this game delicious. I work in a restaurant, give me a break. Why is this lost loot? Mainly because lots of these big publishers, they push these certain games. They push certain games, you know, Renegade, they have the the West Kingdom series and a whole bunch of other stuff. They have lots of successful RPGs and big grandiose productions that sometimes the smaller games fall the wayside. And I believe Blood of the Englishman is that way. I heard almost nothing about this game, but it came from a really successful publisher. I heard of the designer just because I know him from my playtesting, but I didn't even know that this game was out. I am so glad I found this because lots of times these big publishers will put out a bunch of games and some of them, which are absolutely fantastic, fall the wayside either because maybe they're a little niche, that theme doesn't speak to people, or it's overshadowed by a big release. If you are looking for a tight, tactical, and super thematic experience in a 30-minute card game that takes up very minimal space on your table and on your shelf, The Blood of an Englishman is for you. I highly recommend it. Patrick, Scott... You two need to play this game. I may not bring it to PAX because I'm already bringing a couple different games and it's only two-player. But this is a game that I would definitely watch out for and at least try once to see if you like it. Especially with your kids because it's honestly not too hard to learn and has a theme that will definitely speak to them. Well, that's going to do it for me here on Lost Loot, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in and please enjoy the rest of the podcast and give Patrick and Scott my regards. 
And remember, when you're browsing through these large publishers' catalogs, look for the little tabs and blips in the corner, because you never know when you might find some lost loot. Hey, thank you, Josh, so much for that lost loot. What do you think about this one? Blood of an Englishman. I've never played this, Scott. I don't think either of us have. Yeah, well, hey, this is the whole idea of lost loot. I haven't even heard of this one, actually, to be honest. And, and yet it's Renegade Games. I know, but it's it's one of those things that you look at it. I mean, it looks absolutely gorgeous. I mean, it's got great table presence. And it's something I'm ashamed that I haven't noticed this thing here before. Well, it does have the two-player caveat. It is a two-player only mm-hmm. game. Can't play it solo. Can't play it with the group. So, you know, that that for me is typically something that's going to give it the, nope, not going to ever get to play it. But you know what? Lately, with you and I playing so much together, I'm finding two-player games are getting to the table. I'm glad Josh brought this one up because I think you should buy it so that we can play some Blood of an Englishman. I'll get right on it there, Patrick. <laughs> Brave Adventurers, Mondo Games has joined our party. Get 10% off your purchase with Mondo Games using promo code LEVELUP, L-E-V-E-L-U-P. You can go straight to their website or just click the Mondo button on our homepage at levelupgamepodcast.com. Want to expand your options in Unmatched? Enjoy a solo game of A Gentle Rain. Or maybe you're getting fired up for The Thing, Infection at Outpost 31. Don't just score some loot, get 10% off with promo code Level up. Well, Scott, today's discussion topic is kind of a fun introspective for you and I. We just wanted to ramble about uh, some various games, and this was an opportunity to do it. Uh, You know, we're the show that uses folks' thoughts and opinions to discuss gaming in the gaming community. Today, we're just going to talk about games that we wanted to talk about. Are you ready? Yes, but I think this is something here we need to definitely post so people can give us their answers there as well, too. You know I'd what? Like to hear I'll that. do that. We have a listing here of seven, seven different <laughs> questions here. So what is a game you feel is underappreciated? We want to go back and forth. You lead this one. I'll lead the next one. We'll just back and forth. Free Sounds one. good. The one I think is underappreciated is unfair. Unfair is a great little game where you're building an amusement park. It has great artwork There's take that aspects to the game, special things that can happen. There's a lot of fun in this game, but I just feel that it has gotten lost in the mass wasteland of games that are out there right now. They even came out with an easier one with Funfair, Mm -hmm. which is still a, a great game without all the take that kind of stuff in it. But yeah, Unfair is definitely a game that if you haven't played it, Check it out. It's really a surprisingly good game. It plays quick, too, and and can be introduced to just about any age. Yeah, most definitely. What's a game you think is underappreciated? Underappreciated. I'll go with our review from Episode 5, and that's Eschaton. Scott, Eschaton is rated on BGG number 4,630. Oh. I know. It has all the trappings of other deck builders, many of which are quite popular, and it has a mega ton of player interaction. For a, for a dudes on a map, or in this case, a cubes on a map, uh, you know what? It, 
I love this game. The, the theme is nice. I even like the color palette, that muted darkness to it. There's something about the game. Like, I took it to the game day yesterday. I didn't get it to the mm-hmm. table. I thought, well, it's probably a little long. Most folks are playing simpler things. But I had it there. Like, I want to show Escaton to everyone I can because – Tell you what, I see a lot of games rated higher that are not as good as Escaton. Underappreciated, no doubt, Escaton. That was a close one that came to my thing here as far as underappreciated. You almost put the same thing on? I almost (laughs) put that same game down there. There's just something about it that the mixture of the dudes on the map thing, the area control, the deck building aspect of it, it takes a little bit from everything, oh, but the still events? makes it work well together. Yeah. Oh, I want to play it now. <laughs> All right, Scott. Well, let's highlight a popular game. Let's let's sort of do the opposite. A popular game that you just don't care for. Oh, I got to go first, don't I? It's okay, all you. My turn. Popular game that I just didn't care for. Seventh Continent. Huh. Scott, I appreciate what the game does, but it just wasn't for me. It's it's. It's surprising because I actually really like Tainted Grail. It's a game where you're walking around a map, basically, and the map is comprised of cards. You find things. You can craft them together. Uh, A little adventure game. It plays best as a solo game, and I'm fine with that, honestly. But I'm finding more and more that the solo games that I enjoy either have to be, like, focused on mechanisms or on solving a numbers puzzle, or if it's going to have a story, the story can't be on rails. And something about Seventh Continent felt like it was on rails, like there's one way to do it, and Mm -hmm. you just keep playing until you find that way. I didn't like that it was like, well, if you didn't win, you just set it up and you start adventuring again. I'm like, wait, wait, so I'm going to find the same crab with the same, I'm going to find the same burlap and whatnot. Just didn't click. Maybe maybe the biggest issue I had was sorting the cards when I was done with a character. Uh, I think the game has something like a thousand cards. And if you play for an hour, you're going to pull out 40 of these things. And oh my Lord, just having to sort them back into the box, it it made it very not replayable for me. So a game that was popular that I just didn't care for, Seventh Continent. What about you, Scott? Tell me a popular game that you didn't care for. Well, this is where I'm probably going to get some hate mail. Agricola. Mm. I've played it once, and that was the longest hour and a half to two hours that I will never get back. And I've seen Titanic twice. (laughs) So... This is the thing. I mean, I'm sorry. There was nothing that I found enjoyable about Agricola, about building my farm and my family. There was nothing that grabbed a hold of me and said, hey, there's a great game here. You should play this. You should really get into it. It did nothing for me whatsoever. Jason will still look at me. Hey, you want to play Agricola? And I just glare at him, and he, he knows he's the grinning answer. from ear to ear. <laughs> he knows. You didn't feed your people. Oh. I can see it now. You had a disastrous get. Never even went back to it. Played it once, won't go back. Yeah, exactly. I'm done. I'm done. I had more fun feeding wood to my tribesmen in Stone Age than I did at Agricola. Well, you've got to lead our next one, a game that you loved, but your group did not. Well, this one here, I will change to the group, to you. To me. (laughs) I thought that's what you were doing when I saw this on there. (laughs) The game that I loved is Century Spice Road. I really enjoy the mechanics of this, of making your little recipes to trade up, to buy the cards. It just hit 
me perfectly. And I was able to play it. I didn't have to constantly go back to the rules. And I just got immersed into how I want to trade things up to get different cubes and different ingredients to buy things. I can't explain it, to be honest. It's oh, it's just a popular game. You don't have to defend loving yeah. Century Spice Road. And I just have an enjoyable time every time I play it. Not me. <laughs> <laughs> Mine was Carson City. I had the Carson City big box with all the little modules that you could add. Scott, I broke this out with, you know what I know what my mistake is. I broke it out with the not quite as Euro-E group. But I Ooh. thought, dude, it's Wild West. There's guns, there's railroads, there's there's fighting over worker placement spots. They're going to love this. Plus, you get to see your city get built. Things, you know, there's right. fluctuating values on the various buildings throughout the game. I thought it was a going to be a slam dunk. And for me, it was a slam dunk. You ever have board games that come with all those little modules and you've played yeah. the base game 19 times and you never once incorporated a module? Mm -hmm. I could see playing this over and over and start incorporating modules. Well, let's try it with these two. Let's use these three. Let's use them all. <laughs> I could do that with this game because I loved it. And I pointed out the one group didn't like it. The dirty secret is neither did the other group. Both of my play groups. <laughs> both of my play groups. You know, I'll be like, well, do you guys have any requests you want to get? And they're like, no, you, you know what? Honestly, you've never introduced a bad game to us. I didn't care much for that Wild West one with the black box. But other than that, you've never – like, okay, okay, fine. I get it. So my game that I loved that my group did not was Carson City. Okay. A game you could play every week for the next year. I wonder what this could be. <laughs> not Century Spice Road. <laughs> Twilight Imperium, of course, and mm -hmm. I blame Space Cats, Peace Turtles. I could play this every season. I could play it four times a year, but I'm listening to Space Cats, Peace Turtles, and I'm like, holy crap, there's a community of people that play this game literally daily or, or weekly, and they'll play it on, on TTS, which I can't even imagine trying to play that on TTS, but they do. They have tournaments. Patreons of Space Cats, Peace Turtles can uh, basically you become a Patreon and you can enter their tournaments. Listening to their episodes and their breakdowns, it's like, ooh, like they get into nuances of nuances, like the, the, the crannies of the crannies, and it makes me want to experience that. Sometimes you get so deep into learning about something, like in Magic. Uh, for me, that's I've only ever really experienced that in Magic the Gathering, where you start to learn so much about the game and so much about tempo, and you've played it so many times that you start to make decisions based on really minute details and really particular situations that you're only familiar with because you've been there before. And it's mm -hmm. like, wow, you were able to suss that out based on X, Y, and Z? Well, most excellent magic players, not that I was one, but you know, the people that are can do that. I don't have the time. I don't have the lifestyle. I never foresee me doing it, but man, I could play Twilight Imperium every week for the next year. What's yours, Scott? A game you can play every week. Oh, it's a little bit more reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mine is Seven Wonders Duel. I'll be honest, I've been playing a lot of this on BGA right now. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those games where it's different every time you play it because the cards are different how they're laid out. You get your wonders that you want to build. You're playing against one different person. It's getting to the point now I sit there and I play a card 
and then I will look at what's left, and I will hover my mouse over what card they will choose next, and you it's almost tell. always that card. And it's like, I know the way they're going to play. I know exactly what they're going to do. I just get so much enjoyment out of that. And I have a, a great time. I don't win that much. I mean, I've, I'll win maybe just over 50% of the games. But it's just enjoyable because do you want to go the monument route and get points? Do you want to go the science route and get points? Do you want to just go for the points with all the money you get? Do you want to go with this, that? There's so many different routes you can go to winning this game. It's just a ton of fun every time I play it. I really, really enjoy it. Enough so that you could play it every week for the next oh, year. Yeah. Easy, well, you got to answer this easy. one first. A game that you probably should have played by now. Yes, yes. I am rather ashamed that I have not played Twilight Struggle. Mm-mm. That's always up in the BGG rankings and everything. Everyone that was number on one for it. a long time. I know, I know. There's just something about it that looks interesting. Whenever I first saw Twilight Struggle, I'm going to look at it. That was whenever I first started playing games. It's just like you see how many people play this and how important of a game this truly is as far as hobby games go. And I I am truly ashamed that I have not played this game. And I hope to make a change of that before the end of the year and play this game. That's one heck of a time limit. Well, okay. We got some time here. We got a month and a half. Well, the game that I probably should have played by now, I actually brought this up whenever we were a brand new podcast, not that long ago. We were talking about a game that we were ashamed that we haven't played yet, and I still have not played War of the Ring 2nd Edition, mm. and I blame Tom completely. It is entirely on Tom. <laughs> I'm just not willing to sit down and learn it. Uh, I understand there's a lot of, like, FAQ rules, a lot of, like, nuance rules and what happens if type of situations. I'm like, I'm not going to sit down and try and master this because the one person that I'm pretty sure I'm going to play this with, Tom, already knows how to play. And I'm waiting for that. And I haven't given him a firm date at a time that we could do so together. And, you know, it's funny. We said at the beginning of this year, like, oh, you know what? Now that you mentioned War of the Rings 2nd Edition, I bet you you play it. And I said, I'm going to make it an issue to play it this year, almost like a resolution. I have not. The race is on. Who's going to get their game in first? Seriously. Help. Don't do that to me. (laughs) All right. So, a game that is not especially good, but you love it. Right. Everything is subjective, right? So, a game that is not especially good is Shogun or Samurai Swords or Ikusa. And I mentioned this one back over summer. We were talking about the 2021 Shogun Showdown, which was famously inconclusive. Shogun is basically Risk. Uh, There's not that much difference from Risk. You do have a few different pieces that's going to change the probability of the pieces getting in a hit. Uh, But the game's very, very different. Tug of War, King of the Hill, like in a four-player game, once one person, the goal is to get so many territories. There's 67 territories, and if you uh, begin your turn with, say, 35 of them, you've won. Unfortunately, everyone can see you starting to creep up. So if you start to creep up, everybody beats you back down to reality. And then inevitably, somebody else will start to creep up, and everybody will beat you back down to reality. There's two saving graces for this game. One is that you have armies that can level up, and you also have a ninja, which 
lets you assassinate army leaders of other players. And there's a, a like a little luck-based uh, mechanism thrown in there where you might miss and the ninja was actually working for them. And he might in turn kill one of your guys instead, even though you're the one that hired the ninja. It's not <laughs> a great game. But I tell you what, you get my brother's and Mike together in, in my little brother's cabin with some beers on a cold day and a crock pot going, you don't have to pay attention to the game. You just, okay, I've got to push all this this stuff towards you and we're going to roll some dice. And even though there's no skill whatsoever in rolling dice, I'm going to act like there is and shame you for the slaughtering. It's not a great game, but we love it. Scott, tell me about a game that you think is not especially good, but you love that would have to go way back to Decipher Games and their Star Wars CCG game. Oh, this is that 90s one, right? That came out around the yes. same time as Magic? Uh, yes, yes, it was. I still have a ton of it here at my house. It is so convoluted with their rules at times and the table space that this thing can take at times. I've played it where we've had probably a good three and a half feet taken up. Oh, with Lord. our different planets and everything else going on playing this game. It is just so much fun with all the Star Wars characters and getting them on. I mean, whenever you are playing the Imperial side and you get a Star Destroyer out there with Vader on it and all the gunners and then they're just moving down and oh my God, it is so much fun. Then they started throwing in things where you're doing a run on the Death Star and you had to do so many different things to make a run on the Death Star. Then they had Jedi Test that came out with Yoda and that got convoluted. It just got absolutely ridiculous stuff, but oh my God, I love this game so much. If I could find people that play this game, I would try and make a deck again just to get it out and play again. I would bet you somewhere in the corners of the internet, there's a, like maybe on TTS or somewhere, somebody's created a way to play it online. Oh, I know they have, but- Oh yeah? But I, I'm sorry. I want those cards in my hands. <laughs> I want to play against someone right there whenever I'm playing, whenever I'm saying, no, I deny the force to you. And, oh, it's just so much fun. Star Wars CCG, absolute blast. I absolutely love that game. Let's round it out, Scott, with a game that you feel like you could win a tournament at. Warhammer 40K Death Angel. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't understand any of that. No one can win this game. There, This game is like a non-winnable game. But no, I joke about that. I Wait, is that the Space Hulk Death Angel game? The solo, the one that you were talking about playing solo over Christmas a few years ago. Yes, yes, yes. That hard, huh? Oh, it's very hard, yes. But Splendor is a game I think I could win a tournament at. Once again, similar to uh, Century Spice Road. Yeah. Getting the recipes of stuff that you need to build and getting those cards and playing everything in order to be the most efficient with your resources. There's just something about that mechanic that I love that that really grabs me whenever I play a game. Thoroughly enjoyed. So I would have to say Splendor. There you go, folks. Scott just laid down the law. Scott can uh -huh. beat you. I threw that Splendor. gauntlet out. So what game do you think you could win a tournament at? Through the Ages, A New Story of Civilization. Mm, I still have to try this game yet. Well, Scott, I don't actually have the physical copy anymore, but I'm telling you what, man, that, that phone app, it 
so easy. I'm, and they have this one on BGA. Scott, yes, they do. I'm teaching this to Andrew. We might play it tonight or tomorrow. You ought to join us. I have an audition tonight, but we'll see. Uh, well, I played this game more than probably any other game. The app on the phone tracks your stats. Now, in a given game, you're typically going to score somewhere between 300 and 400 points. I have accumulated nearly half a million points in my plays, according to the app statistics. I have played with every single leader dozens, if not hundreds of times. I've played big population, big resource, big science, early culture, late culture, action card focus, big army, aggression focus. You name it, I have done it in this game. I love Through the Ages. I will keep playing it for years to come. I'm hoping for another expansion in the near future. So, you know, check games edition. Get on that. (laughs) I'm not bragging, but this category does allow us to brag a little bit. I'm confident that I could win a tournament of Through the Ages, a new story of civilization. Very cool. Very, very cool. I'm I'm anxious to learn this game. And I'll have to see if I could beat you with this, though. In time, oh, I'm, I'm sure you could. Not at first. Not at first at all. There's too many things to know. It's it's a heavy game. There's no hiding that it's a heavy game. And to do well at it, you have to play it a lot. So I think without having the app, if I had to get good at it playing it on a table, I would never get good at it. It just takes too mm-hmm. long. But the, the app and BGA make it like – on BGA, you can hammer out a game in an hour, maybe less, a two-player game because all the accounting is done for you. Um, right. And to really understand that accounting – it helps to have the app do it for you and you can just get right back into the tactics and the strategy of the game. Just just a wonderful, wonderful game. We'd love to hear games. I mean, there might be games that we never even thought of that like, oh, wow, that is an underappreciated game. We need to play that more. Mm-hmm. And that might lead us to reviewing a game next in our second season coming up here after we're getting close to our first season, our first yeah. year. You know what, in, in, I guess some closing notes before we uh, get on to how to level up. Scott, you and I, on what, in a couple days, we're going to be recording with Jamie Stegmeyer. Yes, we are. That's going to be amazing. Yeah, that I never thought we would be doing anything like this. We'll be talking arts and architecture, the upcoming tapestry expansion. If everything goes according to plan, that's going to be... Oh boy, if I do that as a side quest, it'll be releasing on Thanksgiving. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So maybe uh, maybe that'll be a little dessert courtesy of Level Up. Maybe we'll put it out there. Maybe we'll hold off. So keep your eyes open, adventures. We're going to have arts and architecture, the tapestry expansion, and we're going to have Jamie Stegmeyer on the episode with us. Let's move on to Leveling Up, Scott. We've come to the end of episode 37. We're going to end it the way that we always do. How have you leveled up? Bringing the enjoyment of gaming to my one nephew. Hey! Uh, this was such a great thing. I got a message from her, from his mother. I got him the Marvel United game for his birthday. Yes. And hadn't heard anything, hadn't heard anything. And then all of a sudden she sends me a message. Oh my gosh, he loves this game. Where can I get the Infinity Gauntlet expansion for it? That's why you posted that online. Yes. So unfortunately, they were not part of the Kickstarter for it. And that was just a Kickstarter exclusive. So I'm still trying to find a copy of it out there someplace. Did find one that's not too bad on eBay. But hey, adventurers, if anyone has any leads on that, let me know, please. And it would be wonderful to surprise them at Christmas with the Infinity Gauntlet expansion for Marvel United. But just giving him a game that he especially asked 
for Uncle Scott to get him a game he can play by himself. And I just want to be able to keep that fascination and that entertainment going for him. That's a heck of a level up. That was mine, but I think you had an even more impressive level. No, I don't think so. Mine just involves moving your body. Uh, I mentioned a, a few episodes ago that I signed up for a half marathon and I completed it. And not only did I complete it, but I ran it dressed as <laughs> dressed as the Mandalorian again. <laughs> so I got the helmet on and everything. And it's so funny. Pe- I had people take like selfies. They're like, can I get my picture with you? I'm like, you know I'm just some guy that <laughs> – is going to struggle to run this thing. <laughs> Scott, I tell you what, the, when you're at the mile four, most of these are going to have like drinks that you can get every couple miles, like a little uh-huh. tent set up with snacks or drinks. And you usually don't need them. But the mile four guys, for the last couple of years, I stopped at mile four. The first year that I did, uh, I got a sip of water and I noticed one of them drinking a beer. And I started running away. I was like, hey, maybe a beer on the way back. And he's like, I got gotcha. you. Well, his name's Leroy. I've come to like the mile four checkpoint guy. Leroy <laughs> gives me a beer on the way back every time. <laughs> the one problem is when you have a Mandalorian mask on, trying to get the beer up and under oh. the mask to drink it. Uh, and I can't remove the mask because that's... Well, no. That's not the way. (laughs) It was fun. Uh, I'm glad that I finished it. I always say I'm not competitive. It's a challenge to be able to finish. And I was a little worried this time uh, because I didn't practice as much as I normally did. Uh, But but I I did finish. So I'm pleased. And that is my episode 37, Level Up. That is damn impressive. Whenever you think a half a marathon is, what, 13 miles? Point one. Don't forget that point one. 13.1. 13.1 miles. That's very, very impressive. You want to talk impressive. The guy that won the half marathon, they always have like, okay, competitive runners, you guys are starting at 9 o'clock. All you other bums are going to run at 9.15. So I naturally start with the 9.15s. Dude that won it ran it in like an hour and 15 minutes. Jeez. They're like superhuman. Very Uh, impressive. Scott, you got to sign off? Uh, Let's take a moment, think about what we have, what we've done everything for this year and be thankful for what all we have. It's so important to be able to do that. I know a lot of times I feel whenever I'm being thankful, I feel that I'm being self-righteous in a way about things that I'm proud of, that I have this and I'm happy I have this when so many people don't have things. But if you can make someone smile or make someone's day, that's a victory right there in itself. Meet up at Black Lotus Pizza in two days. See you there, Scott. Sounds good. See you later, Patrick. Thank you so much for joining this adventure of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. We encourage all adventurers to check out our website at levelupgamepodcast.com. There you can submit your thoughts and audio to be used in a future episode. Please consider rating us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and join the Board Game Geek Guild, Guild 3722. Music for the podcast provided by Adam Haynes. Learn more at adamhainesmusic.com. And remember... You can spend another night on the sofa, or you can get some friends together, get some adventures on the table, and level up.